All right. Welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals and Energy Podcast. I'm Mark Heineman, and I'm here today joined by Senior Policy and Regulatory Affairs Associate, Laura Singer. Uh, Laura, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Excellent. Yeah, I guess uh, working for Furbo Energy now, right? Yes, correct. Uh, for about two months now. Oh, man, super exciting. Yeah, you asked for us to postpone this interview so that you would have a little bit more knowledge about the company to, to get started, which is really exciting. And there, it's geothermal, right? Correct. We are developing uh, utility-scale geothermal power. Man, uh, I, I can't wait to dive into that. Um, before we do, uh, we always kind of start our episodes by learning about our guests, kind of where they're from, who they are, how, how they got to where they are. So let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. Where did you go to school and where did you start your career? Sure. Um, so I grew up in New York and uh, went to college down in New Orleans at Tulane University. Um, was there during Katrina, which is really kind of what started me on a sort of public service bent. I studied economics in undergrad and after graduation went to work for the Army Corps of Engineers down there. And that is a um, civilian agency, part of the Department of the Army, uh, that builds uh, levee systems down in New Orleans and manages the water resources in the U.S. And um, it's funny to think about, you know, I was so naive back then coming out of college, like with my Bachelor of Arts in Economics, like you guys must have missed a decimal place or something in your analysis if, uh, if this was allowed to happen. And... Uh, <laughs> As these stories tend to be, you know, it was a, a lot more complicated than that. And so it was a really good kind of first foray into, you know, how government works and how policy is made and, and how, you know, we do things in this country. It's typically, it's a lot more, it's a lot more complicated than, uh, than my young mind thought when I started. So I think There's, it was a great, a great place to, to get started. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of stakeholders, right? Yeah. There's a lot of stakeholders. A lot of stakeholders. It costs a lot of money, and uh, and you know. Uh, so, did you go to work for the Army Corps of Engineers because of Katrina, or was that just influential, or was it just kind of this was a job that was so, available? You know, I uh, I found them at a career fair, and so they have they hire economists there to analyze costs and benefits of projects, and that's how they kind of justify and rank projects is by costs and benefits. And I was you know, super um, concerned about those things, having uh, been living in New Orleans and seeing what happened with Katrina. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was thrilled to get that job, was really thought I was going to go in there and fix things. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's really as, exciting. As all young people do, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, but it's exciting. You know, it's really sort of a delayed process. But we saw late last year with Ida uh, that those storm systems that, that I was a part of the analyzing that got built, you know, ended up holding holding up. And so it was really exciting to see, you know, 15 years down the line, um, Wait, some of the work so that I did. I, I, I love this point. I want, I want to highlight this a little bit. So you, you were inspired by Hurricane Katrina, which was a huge storm that took out and flooded New Orleans, right? Mm -hmm. And then identified an opportunity to go in and help change the systems that were in place and infrastructure that was in place to mitigate those problems in the future? Thought, tried to, uh, you know, ended up just kind of uh, working within the system that we had and, and kind of what we were, we were under a kind of emergency appropriations and analysis system. So we were running at really fast pace during those couple of years, just trying to get projects 
um, analyzed and built. Um, and, you know, at the time didn't necessarily feel like I was having that much of an impact because I wasn't seeing yeah. shovels in the ground um, or anything right. like that. Um, and it really, you know, it took that long, 15 years to see, wow, uh, it really did make a difference. You know, that's so was was Ida similar storm intensity to Katrina then? Yeah, it was. Um, and, the, and then the improved infrastructure helped the city and the area adapt to absorbing right. like weather impact. Yeah, that the systems uh, held up and, and were able to hold back that storm water storm surge. So that's crazy. Now I'm yeah, going to throw you a cur- I'm going to throw you a curveball. Um, from that experience, then, do you think it's a big risk? Um, to humans or the, the climate related risk is, uh, problematic or the adaptation argument that we'll adapt to these storms and be able to manage them in the future is more warranted. You know, I've thought that, about it in that way before. <laughs> I mean, I have, and it was definitely something yeah. that like, you know, I gave a lot of thought to when I was living in New Orleans. You know, we are the thought that like we can just build seawalls and storm infrastructure to hold back any level of storm is, you know, I think a little bit of hubris. I think that there we can engineer these systems. And, and if we're willing to put the amount of money that we need to, I mean, you see what the Dutch do. They build to like a 10,000, 10,000 year storm level of protection in New Orleans. We were talking about like a 500 year. Um, and yeah. so, but, you know, they're putting way more money in. Um, so I think it's a combination of, like, yes, we can build these systems, but we also kind of have to consider ways that, like, we can live with the system we have, you know, whether it's raising homes or, you know, changing the places that people are living, you know, moving slightly back. Um, you know, and those are pretty sensitive issues uh, to talk right. about. People don't like to talk about it, but... Um, they can do a lot, you know, raising homes, and uh, that was another kind of tactic that they used when um, when building those systems isn't effective um, or is not cost effective. Um, and so there's a lot we can do, but I think, um, you know, and this is kind of brings me to a wider point, but I think as the as the system continues to change, like there will need to we're going to need to change our behavior uh, in some ways. And uh, everything's not going to remain the same and it's not necessarily going to get worse. But I think we need to embrace things being different in a way that um, might be scary to think about. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's a cost benefit of what what is a probable outcome. And just like you said, how much do we want to invest to protect against the assets that we have in place. And I, I think that's a fascinating question, especially with a lot of the current climate debate. Um, and it, yeah, that's just kind of always been the other side's, well, I say a, a conservative viewpoint is, well, we can just adapt as we go. Um, and that some, some storms may not be getting stronger. Some, you know, it depends on how you look at the data. There's, that's a, that's a separate argument that we won't, don't dive into that. Okay. Well, I, yeah, what, what an exciting project to work on. So after the Corps of Engineers, where'd you go? So uh, after working down there in New Orleans for two years, I moved back home to New York. I worked for the Corps of Engineers up there um, in the kind of New England area. Uh, and that's a different different type of project. Uh, you know, they're not building levee systems up there. Uh, they're as big as what's in New Orleans. So it was different. 
and after that went on to graduate school. Um, I studied at the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton, and there widened my focus globally. Uh, I was really more domestically focused before, and so I studied international relations and science, technology, and environmental policy, and was really interested in the kind of foreign policy energy nexus. And uh, so that's what I dove into for those couple of years. And that's really an oil story. And so so that's how I ended up kind of working in oil and gas for the next kind of seven or eight years. Uh, you know, not necessarily yeah. in oil and gas, but more like I call it oil and gas adjacent. But uh, but yeah, so that's how it happened for me uh, and how so, kind of so, a very climate focused person ended up, you know, in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Absolutely. What what motivated you to go back to school? You know, some of the frustrations about working at a big agency like that, uh, you know, that I started to experience in New Orleans and, and continued to experience uh, in New York. You know, I wanted to kind of change the system and also um, was looking for almost inspiration. Uh, you know, so many of my classmates knew exactly what they wanted to do. And kind of at that point, I was just like, I know I don't want to do water resources anymore. Uh, And so, and it was just kind of, it broadened my perspective so much, um, you know, learning from the scholars at Princeton and like the much more academic experience than I'd had at Tulane. And so uh, it was really, really exciting for me and and really changed my perspective on a lot of things. Um, So yeah, so grateful for my time there. Yeah. It's always convenient when you can look back and be like, yeah, yeah, that extra education was a good investment. Yeah. I, I know I've, I've heard a lot of people that, yeah, they probably wouldn't say on the record, but they're like, well, that was kind of a waste of time. I'm, right. <laughs> I'm do that again and recommend that. <laughs> Absolutely. But it sounds like you went in with kind of like a perspective of, well, I know what I don't want to do, and I'm using this to gain exposure, more exposure to other areas that I can become invested in. Right. And yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of the kind of, you know, the network it connects you to and, and like the people that I was introduced to in the course of my time there, uh, just incredible. And so, and my classmates, I mean, I remember just being so in awe of them for the first yeah. few months, just like, whoa. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's like alarming. You're like, I'm not the smartest person in the room anymore. There's like other yeah. really high quality people. <laughs> really? I'm intimidated. Um, but yeah, really, it was a great opportunity and, and, um, really enjoyable couple of years. Okay. So you, you dove into oil and gas then, but your mm-hmm. LinkedIn page says EIA for five and a half years. What's, uh, yes. tell us about that. Were you involved in research with at the EIA at specific to yes. oil and gas or? Yes, I was, um, which, a modeler. in which case, thank you so much. I've used so much of your data. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and I'm yep. really curious about how you guys generate all of it, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is quite an operation there. Um, I bet. It is. So, yeah, I started there a few months after grad school and I was uh, worked on the long term modeling side. And so thinking about, uh, you know, what the oil and gas market is going to look like through 2040 and eventually out to 2050. Um, And really interesting, um, you know, and when I started, I thought I was an energy expert like I and and. Then I got to meet like what an energy expert like actually looks like. Just really incredible people working there. Um, they have the kind of data and statistics, uh, the survey side 
um, as well as like the long-term modeling side. And so I was on the long-term side and uh, so focused on oil and gas supply and price out to 2050. So kind of wow. thinking about like, what is the oil and gas market going to look like for the next, you know, 35 years, which is just kind of an exercise of futility anyway, but, <laughs> you know, really interesting kind of long-term um thinking about like what are the forces that are going to drive this market uh you know again for the next 35 years and recognizing that there's necessarily things we don't know and the hardest part for me was i mean i don't know this maybe made it easier but like realizing you're definitely going to be wrong like nothing you predict is going to happen and so it's more about your assumptions and stating your assumptions um and kind of exploring what those sensitivities are. Uh, but you got to recognize, and that kind of takes the pressure off. Like you're not expecting yeah. to get it right. There are uh, short-term forecasts that they do. And I should clarify what I was doing is projections, not forecasts. That was one of our big uh, hammers uh, <laughs> that we were constantly wielding. But so Terminology is important, right? Yeah. It is. We are not predicting what's happening out to three of we are projecting based on current conditions, but yeah, um, there yeah. are short-term forecasts there, and those folks are looking out two years, and, and the markets are really responding to that uh, on a on a pretty quick basis, and those are expected to be correct. Uh, and so, yeah. so was, was it more stressful in the short-term department than the long-term department? I think that they had they there was an element of pressure there. Uh, They've got a harder job. <laughs> and yeah, and the way the markets respond to the, when the CEO comes out, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, and yeah. so definitely, definitely a high pressure thing. You know, what we were doing on the long term side is a little more kind of hand wavy. Yeah, the, this is just fascinating. I mean, you were there from 2014 to 2019, mm-hmm. uh, January to June 2019. Um, and that what and long term meant 10, 20, 40 years. Yeah, it was started 2040 and we extended out to 2050, like over the course of my tenure there. Um, okay. And gotcha. so, yeah, you know, it was, it was a little stressful, uh, trying to, you know, how, how the heck am I going to know what's going to happen in the next, you know, but then you realize like none of us know. Uh, yeah. The oil markets in particular have been fascinating over the past three years with COVID and, but really the supply demand imbalance that was generated by the U.S. shale boom. Like, I find fascinating. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. You can see the U.S. production ramping up, um, which is why I think the time that you were there was super fascinating to, like, be making these projections. Can you just, I guess, comment on kind of what that was like um, with, the, with the volatility of the oil markets and the U.S. in particular, like, ramping up production over that period? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a really exciting time. Uh, you know, the, nobody predicted what was going to happen with U.S. oil markets, like EIA included. And so. Yeah, like go back um, to 14 and they're like, ah, oh, U.S. is going to yeah. uh, probably decrease, right? Like, right. in the total production. Right. Um, and yeah, people love to, to make fun of the EIA, you know, but like our EIAs, I still say are, like I left them like three years ago. Um, <laughs> but their remit is to really take current conditions and project those out. And then other groups that are doing these scenarios are looking at like real changes. And so, uh, so yeah, it was an exciting time. And so we have those, uh, the kind of, what they do is they take the survey data 
um, for the U.S., the modeling operation is like a lot more advanced. Uh, international data is much more hard to come by. And so we have a ton of data about the U.S. And so looking at current conditions and then that feeds into the short-term forecast, the CO that I mentioned earlier, and then that gets projected out um, into the long term. Uh, but as I said, it's very hand wavy. And so when we were talking about price, kind of the first the first place we'd start was like, what are, you know, let's talk about the forces that we, we see, what's going to increase demand, what's going to decrease demand, what's going to increase supply, decrease supply, and those kinds of forces. And then we start, start from there. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was, you know, really exciting. And the amount of data that they're, they have about the U.S. Uh, and the kind of granularity of that data they do, you know, looking at drilling productivity, they have some really amazing products uh, at that agency um, trying to kind of look at that. So I've got, at that. I've got one more question and then we move on from the BIA and talk about what got you out to Colorado. But were, were there perhaps two projections, one that came to pass that you guys were like, oh, this is going to be a forcing factor that definitely pushes the price this way uh, that like came to be reality? Um, that you guys were like, yo, pat yourself on the back. We, we like hit the mark on this one. And then conversely, was there one that like you guys just totally missed the mark and underestimated the forcing factor? I mean, it, you know, this is probably not going to be a satisfying answer, but you know, we're really, <laughs> <laughs> we're really too early to see kind of any of the things that we were talking yeah. about come to pass. Um, you know, I think that you get to, like I said earlier, you get to check the CO like on a much quicker basis, but that was. Right. One of the fun things about my job is like nobody is going to still be around in 2040, like with the clipboard, like checking off, like, did you predict this correctly? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, it's like the classic reservoir engineer in an oil and gas company. Like you can be wrong and you'll be promoted and working for someone else before you're ever yep. proven wrong. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So what, what got you out to Colorado uh, or motivated you to try and make another switch from the EIA? Sure. Um, yeah, I moved out to Colorado just kind of looking for a change uh, from the kind of East Coast mentality. Uh, and so I moved out here without a job. It ended up taking a long time to find something out here. But um, really, you know, I wanted to be close to the mountains. I wanted to, like, have a life that was closer to nature and really found the kind of environment in Colorado. Um, you know, there's an energy there is an energy focus, but there's also an environmentalist focus and kind of how those forces yeah. work together or don't work together, I think was really interesting to me from a policy perspective. And so I thought that um, would fit well with my skill set uh, and that I would be able to find work here nice. that was satisfied. It ended up taking a while, but uh, <laughs> but I did. Um, yeah. And I, I started at Colorado School of Mines the following year um, at their policy institute. It's called the Payne Institute for Public Policy and was working on uh, standing up a new initiative around carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of faculty at Mines doing work around CCUS and, but all in their own departments. Um, so the chemists are doing chemistry, um, you know, the engineers are engineering. And so really trying to build them into a, a cohesive program that like is talking to each other about the synergies between them and then also working to connect them with the policy environment um, 
yeah. outside of mines. And so it yeah. was a cool uh, next step for me. Uh, which I think was super, super valuable, right? Like, I don't think people recognize that you kind of need a person to be the glue to bring together all those disciplines and make those connections. But awesome that you were able to, to start in that opportunity. Um, which, working on Colorado's CCUS plan, carbon capture and underground sequestration, uh, is how I came across you. Right? We were, I, I had no idea this was happening. And then I stumbled across it one day when I was like, angry at Polis's politics and I was like, <laughs> bored, you know? I was like, this is dumb. Why are we doing it this way? And then I stumbled across you guys and I was like, oh my God, we got to talk to these people. Right. Something, you did something so, right. Right. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I guess. But uh, yeah, so we, we didn't get to talk to you about the, about the program while you were on, on the team, but talk to us a little bit about kind of the Colorado's program and, and how that came to be. Sure. I guess um, if you can give an overview of kind of what it was and what, yeah. what kind of work you guys did. That task force came about uh, in response to feedback from the uh, state's GHG roadmap, which came out um, in, I think, January of 2021. And some of the feedback they got from that was you are not considering CCUS enough and the opportunity it could provide for Colorado. And so they took that feedback and, um, and stood up a task force to kind of look at this more detail in a more detailed way um, and figure out what the opportunities were for Colorado and whether that was something they wanted to support. Um, yeah. And so, so this was a, a group of our program that Colorado, the state, the state put together right, and assembled what I'd call an absolute rock star team. I mean, I looked at the credentials of everyone that was on it. I was like, oh, my God, this is like the, the experts of all experts that can advise on how to make this better and like do an evaluation. Yeah, it was really exciting. Um, it was an effort that was led by the Colorado Energy Office. And then Colorado School of Mines was the secretariat for that. So I got to help lead that with uh, a crew of three great guys from the Energy Office. And uh, like you so said, a really you- rock star team of uh, people from um, – Industry, government, and NGOs, and then me as the academia uh, representative, and really did a great job of working together and um, trying to find kind of uh, commonalities where we could build consensus, and, and also acknowledging where where we weren't able to uh, to find consensus and and deliver a set of recommendations for the state uh, to consider and where that you know more analysis would be needed. Um, yeah. And so your your role was? Yeah, we had a kind of a leadership group of four. Four, yeah. Um, and so that I was helping with that um, gotcha. as the representative from Mines. Uh, so, yeah, we were we worked on it for about a year. The recommendations, the final recommendations came out after I left. But, uh, you know, a set of, of next steps the state could take and uh, activities or um, – Actions that would need, you know, legislative approval and where those should be focused and what the state should think about doing and, and where it needed to, again, do more analysis. Yeah, excellent. Well, we'll, we'll have to dive into that report and the findings on on a separate podcast. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Which I, which I can't wait. But it's out now, right? I mean, it's been. Yes, really yes those recommendations are out. I'm, I'm behind and I haven't followed up on it. So. <laughs> Yes, those recommendations are out, and they are out in Spanish as well. Uh, it's all available on there. The website is run by Minds, but if you Google Colorado CCUS Task Force, 
it is the first result. So. Yep. Nice. Love it. Okay. So then you switched to Furbo. Yes. Yes. A whole two months ago. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it has, uh, it's been a, I've been a while, waiting a while for this one. Uh, it's a fun story, yeah. uh, to think about. I've been super energy into geothermal energy for a long time now. Uh, when I started at EIA, they do an kind of intro to energy course. And so since I heard about geothermal back then, it was 2014. I've been just super into it. Uh, really exciting, uh, really excited about the kind of synergies between that and oil and gas and the kind of potential for it to be a future path for, you know, people in the oil and gas workforce um, going forward. Um, and so I've been trying to get into the industry for a long time. And so when I moved to Colorado, I hit up the CEO, his name is Tim Latimer, on Twitter uh, to just like, are there jobs uh, doing this in Colorado? Um, please help or hire me. And his yeah. response was basically like, there's no geothermal in Colorado yet. <laughs> there's um, no money. We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> we are trying to change that, uh, but it's not there yet. Um, and so, um, you know, I continued to like stalk their job site for, um, two years and, uh, finally found something. And, you know, I think thanks to the pandemic allowing, you know, more remote work, um, I'm able to do that from Colorado. But, uh, two years later, they were looking for a policy person to focus on Western states and, uh, and the rest is history. How fortuitous, right? Yes. But I always say chance favors the educated mind and the, and the hustler. Yes. Right? Meaning like you, you had reached out early and, uh, developed a relationship so that when the job became available, there, you were front of mind, right? Yes. And went with an absolutely like zero chill approach, was completely open <laughs> about how badly I wanted it and for how long. Um, and it worked, you know, those That's, things, yeah. things worked. You can't be too That's hilarious. in that context. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings to mind um, in Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek, he, he describes his time after leaving Princeton where he had zero job prospects and, like, only got his first job after sending the only CEO that he knew, like, 39 consecutive emails in a month. <laughs> the CEO eventually was like, fine, I'll fine. Like yeah, okay. it'll take less time than reading all these emails, right? Yeah, right. Like, so sometimes persistence to, does pay off. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so tell us about the, well, number one, give us, for those that are ignorant, uh, perhaps an overview of geothermal and then, and then, uh, Fervo's role in the space and what they're trying to do. Um, so geothermal, generally speaking, is uh, uses the heat of the earth to create energy. Um, these systems have been along, around for a really long time, um, both to produce power as well as uh, to produce heat directly. And so in Colorado, we've got lots of hot springs. That's geothermal heat, um, but also, you know, can be used in applications like, you know, greenhouses and, and even to heat and cool your home. Um, yeah. Fervo uh, is focused on the power side. And so we are working to make electricity, right? Yes. Uh, to develop utility scale power. And, and the way that's generated is basically you're pumping water through a reservoir. Uh, and that water is going to absorb heat from the reservoir. And then you bring it back up to the surface. 
you take that heat out and use it to make power. Um, and so, like I said, and by reservoir, you mean like a subsurface reservoir or porous, yeah. porous media, porous rocks, like we think of in conventional oil and gas, but for anyone outside of oil and gas reservoir, sounds like a yeah, standing body of water, but it's really through yeah. rocks that are hot in the subsurface. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, for sure. Uh, not, uh, <laughs> not a reservoir in the conventional sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that technology has been around for a long time. Uh, Conventionally, it is these kind of hydrothermal reservoirs, really steam-laden, um, kind of naturally porous uh, underground formations. Um, and what we're seeing now uh, and where Fervo is focused is um, kind of expanding the uh, availability of resource, uh, the type of resource that we can use to create geothermal power um, by using modern drilling techniques uh, and completion techniques to kind of increase the array, again, of resources that we can produce from. And so uh, much less much less limited in the kind of geography where we can produce this power. Um, and so uh, trying to take technology that was pioneered by oil and gas in the uh, unconventional uh, Michelle revolution uh, and, and kind of apply that to the production of renewable energy as well. Ah, which is just, it's genius. You know, Chris Wright with Liberty Resources talks a lot about this. Um, I think I actually saw your CEO, Tim, speak at the D5 conference in November mm-hmm. um, in, in town here in Denver. Um, and yeah, his presentation of it was fantastic. So, I mean, what, what, why is this applicable now and what's actually happening um, that makes this more accessible in more areas versus what traditional or conventional geothermal uh, was limited by. Yeah, it's uh, so it's not it's being not limited to those kind of hydrothermal reservoirs that are only in a few areas, um, you know, the most. Right, so it's not limited just the, just the hot spots. Right. There might right. be a magma intrusion, the super hot, the subsurface. Those are limited in where they exist in the world. Right. Yeah. It's the kind of hydrothermal, the steam reservoirs. That's typically and I guess the. The analogy to oil and gas is like production used to be you just like put a straw in the earth and like the oil comes out and like that resource is no longer, you know, widely available. And so now you have to do more to produce it. And so as a result, you can produce a lot more. And so it's the same thing here. So uh, using those new techniques like um, kind of horizontal drilling um, as well as like creating our own fractures. Um, for that water to move through, uh, we're able to produce from a wider array of resources. And that resource is, I mean, so it's everywhere in the U.S., but basically we look for a combination of temperature and depth. And so looking for 150 to 200 degrees Celsius at a depth of less than 10,000 feet. And that's a Western U.S. Um, mostly, yeah. you know, as you move east, that that resource, it still gets that hot, it's just a lot deeper. And so, yeah. you know, maybe in the future, as drilling efficiencies continue to advance and the costs continue to come down, um, eventually I think that it's a possibility everywhere, but uh, our focus right now is, is in the West where that is at a shallower depth. Gotcha. So you guys are using hydraulic fracturing to increase surface area in some of these cooler temperature reservoirs to provide basically better heat transfer um, for more liquid in a cooler reservoir. Um, yeah. 
Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, pretty much. So they, they, we used to have to look for kind of the faults to be naturally occurring. Um, and so the water could move through these naturally occurring faults. And now, you know, because we've learned how to fracture that ourselves, we can do that, um, and create our own porosity in the reservoir, which makes it easier. Um, right. Okay. So, I mean, who are some of your like ideal customers or partners that you guys might be trying to work with? Sure. Um, so we are focused um, on developing that utility scale uh, geothermal power. And so our ideal is to feed into a grid. And so looking to partner with utilities or large um, load serving ent- entities um, in California, you know, community choice aggregators, things like that. Anybody who's looking to connect uh, electricity generators and customers um, is our most obvious target. Um, with that said, our first uh, commercial agreement was with Google. Um, and that is uh, Google is a leader in clean energy. They have um, clean energy goals and they are looking at 24-7 clean energy. And that's really where geothermal can shine. Um, it's an always-on resource. Um and so they have a real interest in procuring geothermal energy and seeing that industry grow. Um, Microsoft as well, I believe, has a 24-7 clean energy goal. Um, and so big companies like that that have a huge demand um, for clean firm power would be um, great customers for us. Um, most recently, um, the White House in December, I think, came out with an executive order about clean energy for federal buildings. Uh, 50% of their uh, energy has to be 24-7 clean power. So that's another thing that's going to kind of greatly increase demand. Um, and as, you know, electricity needs are growing dramatically as we're electrifying transportation, uh, and that's not even considering things like green hydrogen or, you know, direct air capture, things that are going to be huge demanders of clean, firm power um, is growing the demand. Um, And we're seeing it more and more as more variable renewables like solar and wind come on the grid. um, It creates a need for that kind of backup power. And Mm -hmm. as the, as it renewables penetrate more and more um, and, you end up, you still need that variable back. I mean, the um, firm backup, and so yeah. um, so we're From my seeing that. Like geothermal is like way better than wind and solar, and should be priced accordingly. Because just like you say, it's dependable. Um, something that I don't think gets touted enough for geothermal is like the surface footprint is Correct. minuscule for an equivalent amount of power that a wind farm or a solar farm would take. I mean, you know, it's, it's virtually non-existent, right? You can drill a two-mile well, injection well, and then you've got a um, two-mile uh, production well, right, that you're recycling water to and from. And, and the, the surface footprint is like a small power plant that's a couple acres or, you know, like 10 acres or something, right? Like, and Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't think – I think you guys need to scream that a little louder. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely that's uh, that's part of my remit and uh, and ours as an industry as well is is making that point. You know, I think that we see ourselves as being a great complement to uh, other forms of renewables. You know, it's definitely solar and wind are are cheaper on a LCOE basis, but when you think about reliability and always on generation, well, they 
this really frustrates me as a, like on the because they're like solar and wind. Yeah, it's always LCO week, which is levelized cost of electricity or energy. You know, and, and they're like, well, you know, when the sun's shining and the solar panels producing at 80 to 100 percent capacity, then yes, it is cheaper because your fuel's free. But if you look at a systems level and say, well, we need electricity all the time so that people in hospitals can have their ventilators functioning 100 percent of the time. Uh, it is not cheaper because you have to buy twice as many solar panels and then batteries to deploy the power later, right? So if, if that was priced in correctly, mm-hmm. then do you think geothermal would still be more expensive? I think that when you're considering those kind of other characteristics that are not built into the LCOE, I think that, you know, people are willing to pay. We're seeing it by, we're seeing it by Google. We'll see it by the federal government. You know, they're willing to pay for 24 seven. Um, clean power. And so, you know, right now, uh, on an LCOE basis, we're more expensive. But I think that, um, yeah, we got to figure out a new way to like analyze that, uh, to consider not only the cost of the power, but like the characteristics of the power sure. as well. I, I, and I think that's, like I said, a systems problem or something that's dysfunctional with the utility, the way that most utilities are structured mm-hmm. is that the reliability has to be granted a premium. Um, otherwise, like, I don't know, we're going to keep building unreliable sources of energy, but ultimately I think it makes it more expensive. So help bracket for our, for our listeners, what kind of is a good range for geothermals, LCOE, not taking into account the, the reliability? Now, to give you, well, you guys' trade secrets for kind of what you expect for. Um, um, and if you can't share, that's totally fine. But Well, you know, so geothermal PPAs are being signed right now, and average is about $68. Per megawatt hour. Okay, so yeah, uh, on par with some call it residential rates in certain parts of the country, or yeah, but not for the production cost. So um, cool. So what are some of the bigger challenges that you guys have faced uh, in the industry, or sure. Furbo is facing now? Yeah, uh, you know, one of the biggest things we're looking at right now is the need to scale uh, dramatically fast. Uh, this industry's been around for a long time, uh, producing like 0.4% of the U.S.'s power or something like that, mm-hmm. um, growing at like 1.5% every year, and now looking at having to put on massive amounts of power onto the grid. Um, California last year issued a medium-term reliability uh, requirement that just called for thousands of um megawatts of geothermal power, which we now need to provide and uh, need to grow it at a pace that we have not grown uh, at before. And so the need to scale quickly and do it well to show that, you know, we can do this. This is an industry that can provide uh, the type of power that's being demanded. And so when it comes to providing, putting lots of power on the grid, uh, transmission capacity is going to be a big one. So making sure that that transmission capacity is available to us so that we can get that power on the grid. So we focus um, on those transmission planning processes in the states that we operate mm-hmm. in. Um, and, and that's, also, I guess, you know, so you mentioned that just to hone in on that real quick, using horizontal drilling hydraulic fracture for geothermal should increase the number of opportune or ideal locations that you can deploy it. But that therefore, Relative to traditional geothermal, you don't need as far of transmission, right? Meaning like, oh, the, the optimal asset might be, 
you know, Northern California, but the demand is in Southern California. So you have to have that transmission line. Well, maybe now the optimal, like the optimal asset could be, uh, you know, 20 miles away instead of 200 miles away. And, so, but you still have to plan for, you know, building a transmission line or the transmission capability from your ideal asset, right? It's a balance in the transportation cost versus the best production area. Right. Yeah. The, the capacity still needs to be there to serve the kind of loads that are, are asking for it. And so, you know, that's something that California is focused on is making sure that all of this like additional power it's contracting um, is able to actually get to the grid in the places it needs to. And that, that grid isn't overloaded in any particular point. And so it's definitely a balancing act that isn't just let me get the power let me get the power onto the grid. It's like, how am I actually going to get it there, even if I'm able to build it? Um, and that brings me to another one, which is regulatory challenges. Um, the regulatory process for geothermal uh, can be really onerous. Um, when you compare it to solar and wind, they only have to go through permitting once uh, to construct their project. Uh, whereas geothermal has to go through it at least three times. Um, when we do an exploratory well, there's a permitting process. When we do a development well, there's a permitting process. And then when you build a power plant, there's a, another permitting process. And so going through that three times, um, and, you know, we're very focused on the environmental impact of our projects. Um, we're not, you know, and take NEPA very seriously, um, the National Environmental Protection Act. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, and oil and gas have figured out a way to streamline that permitting, that repetitive permitting process, um, you know, through categorical exclusions and other, and other, um, regulation streamlining, um, that geothermal has not, uh, to date benefited from. And so multiple permitting processes, um, and, uh, the BLM is also has some real um, staffing uh, limits. And so they might, you know, they want to approve or look at our project, but just don't have the manpower in the places they need to. Um, they are 100% overwhelmed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they, uh, say, I could say definitively from my perspective in the yeah, upstream space and our attempt to get federal permits to drill oil wells, they are, yep. yeah. Yeah, I heard a wild statistic today that um, in Nevada, which is uh, one of the biggest opportunities for geothermal, each BLM employee is responsible for 73,000 acres of federal land. And like, I don't know, the next one is Utah and it's like 37,000. I mean, it's just, you know, a wild, the workload is just way too much. And so trying to make sure that resources get steered into that agency so that these types of, you know, the administration has demonstrated that they would like to see more renewables built on public lands. Um, but, it's like, well, then yeah. give us permits to do it. Like, make it exactly. easier for us, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, fascinating. Okay, so that was a bunch about Fervo and the company. What's well, Why did they bring you on? What's your goal? And why, why do you get to live in Colorado? And it sounds like the headquarters may not be there. And Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the 
A lot of people at Fervo, I would say even most people, come from a background of oil and gas. Um, and so, you know, the synergies between those industries are really exciting and, and folks that are trying to use their experience in oil and gas to kind of further renewable energy as well is really exciting to me. And one of the things that I found most attractive about the company is, you know, finding kindred spirits uh, to work with is really, really exciting. Um, and so I was brought on to focus on state level policy um, in those Western states. And so, you know, Colorado, our biggest focus areas are, I guess, California, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, Colorado, a little bit less so. Um, but, you know, the, a lot of our resources are like under the Rockies. Um, but, uh, but yeah, got to stay in Colorado. There are three of us here in the Denver area. Um, the biggest the company's headquartered in Houston, um, which makes sense with the oil and gas history and kind of skill set. And then there's a contingent in the Bay Area and in Reno. So, but we're growing very quickly. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was um, thrilled to be able to stay in Colorado, but still do the work. Um, and, you know, as long as I could get to the Western states easily. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Um, so we've got a couple of questions that we ask a lot of our guests. So uh, what, what advice do you have for young professionals in there? Sure. Um, so the advice I got when I left grad school was to um, find a place to work, to start your career where you can learn the numbers. Um, and that was kind of what led me to join EIA uh, as my first job out of grad school. And again, I mentioned this earlier, I thought I was an expert um, and I really had no idea. And I think that like learning the numbers and the details kind of taught me what I needed to know to kind of think about energy policy. Um, you really you need that kind of concrete, uh, detailed experience. And so I think that I would echo that advice um, to find a place, whether it's, you know, in finance or, um, or, you know, data analysis, things like that, where you can like understand really the nitty gritty of how that, in, how the industry works. Um, can't recommend yeah. that enough. I think that's fantastic advice, 100%. Um, okay, and then what? what's one thing about the industry that, that scares you? And then, I, yeah, I'll turn it around and, and leave some on an optimistic note for uh, where you think the industry's going. Sure. Um, what scares me is is um, is that we won't act quickly or boldly enough. Um, that, you know, we need big changes to the energy system uh you know, to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. Um, there need to be changes in, uh, in behavior. Um, you know, and like I said earlier, those aren't all, those aren't bad changes. They're just different. And, but, you know, life, uh, energy, the way we get it isn't going to always be the same. And we can't pretend it's always going to be the same. Um, we need to kind of think honestly and be able to communicate that to people that, you know, life will look different. It's, um, you know, whether it's better, more affordable, efficient public transportation, the high speed rail, you know, that objectively is better than having to go to an airport, but it is different. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, effectively communicating that things will need to change. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but life isn't going to 
always look the same and it shouldn't have to. Um, and so I think that, um, the fear of big, bold change, um, and kind of the way that the system we have here in the U.S. kind of reacts against those changes that, you know, we need, we need big, bold change and we need it now. Uh, we can't, you know, we can't wait until the end of the decade. And so trying to push towards that change however we can is my focus. And so where is energy going? Uh, so I think that we're seeing more people are, are seeing the need for climate action and, and desiring to kind of live more sustainably. Um, as well as, you know, and it's, this is not optimistic, but the awful situation that we're seeing happening in Ukraine right now is putting a really stark focus on energy security and, and the need to kind of think about that differently than we have in the past. And, and I don't think the answer is to double down on the same resources that, you know, have gotten, you know, put us into the same position that we're in now, um, but to find a way to be more stable and secure um, without being so dependent on on um, non-renewable resources. And so I think that, you know, it's a real opportunity for geothermal. Uh, it's a real opportunity for renewable energy in general to um, to step up and, and, and provide that power in a more sustainable way and, um, and hopefully increase our, uh, you know, not only our sustainability, but our security as well. And so um, definitely moving, seeing, seeing progress moving towards those goals is uh, definitely leaves me optimistic. I couldn't agree more. Laura Singer, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me.